Welcome to Academically Speaking. This podcast is designed to provide our listeners with an opportunity to engage with subjects and topics related to student academic success. How we think and what we do is important to how we become citizens of this country and of the world. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Theodora Regina Berry, Vice Provost and Dean for the College of Undergraduate Studies, and welcome to Academically Speaking. Today, my guest is the one and only Dr. Michael Gilbrook. Dr. Gilbrook joined the Faculty of Interdisciplinary Studies in August 2003 to teach two courses in Geographic Information Systems, GIS, for the Environmental Studies program. He has over 35 years of experience using GIS for a variety of environmental planning, facility, I'm gonna try that again, facility siting and environmental impact analysis for both the public and private sectors. He holds a PhD in conservation biology from the University of Central Florida and is an AICP certified planner. And we're gonna talk about what that is in a minute. And a GISCI certified GIS professional. In addition to the two introductory GIS courses, Dr. Gilbrook also teaches online sections of GIS 4314, GIS Research Methods in Environmental Studies, EVR 3008, Foundations in Environmental Studies, and EVR 4940, Capstone Experience in Environmental Studies. Dr. Gilbrook says he gets tremendous satisfaction from the many former students who have found success in their academic or professional careers using the GIS skills they learned in the UCF Bachelor of Science an environmental studies program. Welcome, Dr. Gilbrook. Thank you, Dr. Brady. It's good to be here. It is so good to have you. And um, I've had the opportunity to talk to many of your fellow colleagues in interdisciplinary studies as we focus on uh, celebrating our faculty uh, during our podcast series. And we've also had the opportunity to talk to a number of students to include uh, one of your current students, Nicole Boyson, who was the recipient of the Order of Pegasus uh, Award, as well as the Founders Day Award for the College of Undergraduate Studies, and credits you for many of the things that she's been able to accomplish as a student in her time here at UCF. And she is a, a rising senior and prepared to move through her life with all the things that she has learned in your courses and in others in the program. So as we think about all the things that our students have gained from the opportunity to engage with you, I am sure that there are lots of things that you have gained over the course of your experiences and careers 
that have been beneficial to yourself and that have been passed on to our students. So tell us a little bit about your background and the things that you have garnered, particularly as someone who has earned degrees here at UCF. Okay. So we were talking earlier before we turned the cameras on about, about the age of Milliken Hall. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, I've, I was uh, you know, almost a plank owner. It's a, I wasn't in the first class at UCF, but it uh, wasn't too much longer after that. Um, I started uh, as an undergraduate here in uh, 1975. Mm -hmm. um, got my BS in uh, biology, uh, actually in a specialty of biology, uh, that we no longer have now. It's uh, mm -hmm. a limnology, which is the science of freshwater ecology. It's kind of oh, like wow. oceanography for freshwater. Okay. Um, so if you think of oceanography for lakes and streams, that'd mm -hmm. be limnology. So I got my degree in limnology in 78, uh, moved straight into a master's of biological science, uh, and uh, left UCF with that in 1981. And uh, um, went straight into a job with um, uh, the state of Florida as an environmental scientist, uh, actually replacing another UCF graduate who moved on to another a new job. So, so we were able to, to you know to keep keep up the UCF tradition in that role, um, and worked in that uh, state environmental scientist position for nearly five years, mm -hmm. um, and uh, pretty much doing what I was trained to do mm -hmm. in you know as a as a freshwater ecologist. Um, uh, along the way, um, uh, uh, I was on a, a committee uh, to look at uh, the problems uh, related to the Indian River Lagoon. Mm. I represented the Department of Transportation on that, um, and uh, uh, I came to the attention of uh, somebody at the East Central Florida Regional Planning Council. Mm. He was looking for somebody who could... Uh, uh, help with the preparation of their um, regional policy plan. This was a new thing the legislature had re recently required. Mm -hmm. And um, so uh, we talked and I realized this is a good opportunity. So I went from being an environmental scientist to being more of an environmental planner. Mm -hmm. So not really go out in the field anymore, mm -hmm. not really going out and doing hands-on environmental science, but using what I'd learned uh, to help develop policy mm -hmm. and planning. Um, did that for about eight years. And uh, while I was there, uh, the Regional Planning Council was one of the first uh, government agencies in the state of Florida to um, experiment with using a uh, geographic information system that was based on a microcomputer, on a PC. Oh. Up to that point, GIS was something you could only run on a, a, a mini computer. And those, despite the name, Huge. They were the size of a refrigerator. A, right, right. <laughs> yeah. So, so doing GIS on a on a microcomputer on a desktop PC was something that you know was a, kind of a new thing, and we had a pilot program. We worked with some other state agencies on that, and it was very successful. And we ended up while I was there at at, at the regional planning council, we ended up using G GIS on a lot of environmental planning uh, problems while I was there. At the end of about eight years, uh, again, I found myself working with some folks um, uh, on a project um, uh, that were from the private sector, and there was an opportunity there. They needed somebody like me, and um, so I uh, left the RPC, went to that um, engineering firm, which was also, many engineering firms now also do environmental and planning work, and uh, was ended up being there for 28 years. Wow. Um, along the way, um, in 2003, uh, one of my old professors here contacted me and said, there's a program here at UCF 
that wants to teach courses in GIS and they don't have anybody to do that. Would you be interested? And I said, wow, that sounds great. I, I would, in fact, be interested in doing that. Uh, because one of the things I'd learned along the way as being a, a supervisor who was having to hire people is that many of the people I was looking at um, as candidates were not particularly prepared. You know, mm -hmm. they, they'd had a GIS course or two, but really didn't seem to know how they would apply it. Right. So one of the things I wanted to do was um, uh, help develop a curriculum where the people, the students that came out of that program would be prepared um, to almost on day one to be able to put what they learned in GIS to use, mm -hmm. uh, no matter where it was that they went mm -hmm. to work. So, um, uh, so I've been teaching since 2003, became full-time uh, in uh, 2021, uh, essentially semi-retired by leaving the, the, the environmental um, engineering firm. And uh, I've been here full-time since uh, August of 2021. Excellent, okay. So um, first of all, I have to say that um, GIS was probably something that a lot of people in, in your field and similar fields knew a lot about a number of years ago. Um, but as a social scientist, and particularly as someone who particularly, particularly sort of gets engaged in more sort of a theoretical way of understanding things, it was a completely new concept to me about 10 years ago when one of my colleagues, who is someone who does work around the sociology of education, started using GIS to sort of figure out uh, the landscape in California around the way in which schooling and, and race work together. And I was completely fascinated by the use of something that was completely outside of what most of us in the social sciences do, sort of fitting in now to understanding how social groups and systems work and how um, institutions and governments influence some of those things and using GIS to sort of figure right. those things out. So it was completely fascinating to me that, you know, research around that has now sort of expanded into a lot of other fields. So tell us a little bit about your own research and the ways in which you may or may not use GIS incorporated into your research. Sure. Well, you know, it's interesting you say that because the, you know, when, when I first got introduced to GIS, you know, I... You know, I'd never seen it before, uh, and uh, and only read a little bit about it. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, a lot of people that meet me over the years, you know, have assumed that I was, you know, you know, this is something I took in college. You know, it's like no, many of the people in my generation learned it on the job. Right. You know, now we have, you know, it, it's being taught in schools. There are people that get degrees in it. Um, but uh, you know, many of the people that you know were on the ground floor, they were experts in something else first, mm -hmm. and only became. Uh, uh, interested in GIS later when they saw this is something that can help me solve some of the problems right. I have as a and then name the field you know right. environmental scientist or social scientist or political scientist. One of the things I like to tell my students in in the classes we teach is that uh, GIS is a tool for answering questions. Yes, it's not for making maps. Maps are the byproduct that helps you communicate mm -hmm. what you've learned. Um, and it's not a green tool. A lot of people make the mistake of assuming that it's only something used by environmental scientists. But in fact, there's lots of problems that have um, uh, what we call a spatially explicit mm -hmm. aspect to them. They're somehow tied to geography. And yes. social science is clearly one of those. And uh, so anytime you have a problem 
where where things are in space is part of the issue, then GIS is something that can help you with that. Um, so the um, uh, as far as my own research goes, um, uh, my doctoral research for my PhD, uh, I was really interested in the in the idea of. Um, uh, uh, how urban sprawl was affecting the environment in Florida. Mm. This is something that I've been worried about since my days at the Regional Planning Council. Mm. And um, so I did a statewide study, looked at all 67 counties of the state, and used um, uh, uh, some tools that came from the landscape ecology mm -hmm. toolbox. They have metrics that are used to determine um, uh, how broken up, uh, you know, like a forest may be. Mm -hmm. Uh, I realized you could use those same tools to look at urban sprawl. You mm -hmm. could characterize one county versus another as being more or less sprawly right. based on those metrics. Um, so that was my my research uh, uh, that got me my my PhD. Uh, since then, uh, you know, working as a consultant, I didn't really have a, a big opportunity to do a lot of original research, mm -hmm. but I had an opportunity to work on a little a lot of great. Uh, projects, uh, mostly for, for cities and counties, mm -hmm. um, using GIS. A couple of the ones that I, I was involved in just before I left to come full-time at UCF um, was a, uh, a project to help identify the gaps in the electrical vehicle charging network throughout mm -hmm. Florida. Um, there's right now, as you may know, uh, uh, the Congress uh, passed and President Biden signed mm -hmm. the, uh, um, uh, the big infrastructure bill mm -hmm. uh, that's putting uh, millions of dollars into locating uh, new electrical vehicle chargers to make right. it easier for people to find uh, a place to charge. Um, so I was part of the, the study in Florida to try to figure out where were the gaps. And you know, there where are, are these, gaps. Yeah, and there are big, some, some big gaps. So we use GIS for that. Mm -hmm. um, another study that uh, I'm quite, quite proud of that we uh, wrapped up just before I, I left to come to UCF was uh, a study of... Uh, 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 the effects of sea level rise mm. in the Florida Keys. Mm. Uh, the county down there was very concerned about uh, what's going to happen to um, our roadway network and other infrastructure mm. if sea level rise uh, continues as, as projected. Uh, and the results are pretty scary, actually. Mm -hmm. So um, we use GIS extensively mm -hmm. to, to study that problem. And, and I find it absolutely fascinating because for a couple of different reasons, because one, I'm a bit of a, a, a geeky nerd when it comes to research, right? So I get super excited about how people are investigating certain answers to questions. But I'm also thinking about the ways in which this very practical tool really has the empower to impact on our everyday lived experiences. So for instance, I live in a really new subdivision. I can't even imagine all the things they had to tear down to put up these homes. And now they're having to expand the roads around my community because traffic flow has increased and all the trees that went down and all and the absence of this vegetation and how it might be impacting now on the environment in my community. You know, and now we're seeing all, you know, tons and tons of cranes and other indigenous birds that I don't know anything about because I'm from Philadelphia, so I've never seen these things before, right? We see deer, right? Yeah. But, we don't, but we don't see all these other exotic birds, right? Um, and even as I love to visit Italy, and I go to Venice um, often, probably more often than most, um, but rising sea level is a huge issue in that area. 
and the way in which um, now people are worried about very um, important landmark structures having to succumb to the seawater and what they're going to do. And I, I can only imagine how GIS is really informing many of the decisions that people are now making around, you know, where they put in new houses or, or uh, infrastructure for new communities and how they expand roadways and how to protect landmark buildings and, and all kinds of other things. Um, and so as we think about that, um, I want to go back to something that I saw in your bio that I found really fascinating, and that's this AICP certified planner, right? So that tells us something about your experience, and particularly as we talk about some of the projects that you've been involved in. So tell us, first of all, what that means and what it enables you to do um, in relationship to your work. Yeah, good question. Um, you know, in... Uh, in government and in the, the, the private sector, your academic qualifications, once you've reached, you know, whatever the requirements are for whatever the job mm -hmm. is, you know, are less important to people than um, uh, many of the uh, uh, additional certifications mm -hmm. uh, that you've obtained uh, that show that uh, you've reached a certain level of proficiency in, in whatever field you're working in. Um, in the planning world, um, uh, the American Institute of Certified Planners, uh, as its name suggests, certifies that people that are working in the planning industry have met certain minimum requirements. Um, there's a big exam required um, that uh, is uh, uh, very comprehensive and very difficult, uh, as well as sort of a portfolio requirement that you, you've got a certain number of years of experience in, um, in planning. Um, so uh, I had been working at the, the Regional Planning Council for, as I mentioned earlier, um, you know, eight years, mm -hmm. um, and then uh, was at uh, the, the environmental consulting firm for a number of years, and I realized, you know, I have now the necessary background to qualify for the AICP. Mm -hmm. um, so I went ahead and studied and, and, and took the, de the, the exam and, and, and got the certification. And basically, it's just um, like so many other certifications, it, uh, it's sort of a differentiator. It maybe opens a door sometimes. Um, you know, when people are looking at, you know, uh, uh, I tell my students this a lot, if they're looking at re your resume mm -hmm. and uh, you got the, uh, uh, the GIS certificate that we offer here at UCF and your resume otherwise looks very similar to somebody else who doesn't have that, mm -hmm. an employer might go, well, very hard to see the difference between these two candidates, but you know, I'm gonna use this as a tiebreaker and go with this. Right. person that has the GIS certificate. Right. Um, well, you know, everybody's kind of the same way. Clients and, you know, cities, counties, if they see that here's a team that's coming in, how many of that team are AICP certified planners? I'm going to feel more confident mm -hmm. about the planning um, uh, uh, advice and recommendations I'm getting mm -hmm. if there's more AICPs on that team mm -hmm. than the one that doesn't have any. Absolutely. So it, it looked like it was a, it was a good career move. And, I, and in fact, I have anecdotal evidence that supports this. I was in a meeting one day with a friend of mine who I'd used to work with at the Regional Planning Council. We were talking to this, this city and we were passing out our business cards. And the county manager, city manager picked up my business card and he says, oh, I see you're an AICP. He says, you know, that's, that's really great. You know, I'm really glad to hear that. And he put it down. And as I walked out, my buddy said, yeah, maybe it's time for me to get one too. <laughs>
Yes, absolutely. So I, I was paying attention to what you were saying, and it struck me that it's clear that your experiences and your knowledge and expertise are being passed along to your students because you're sharing with them, you know, things about earning a certificate and how to put together their, their resume. So tell us a little bit about why you like teaching. You know, I think everybody who's a teacher probably, um, you know, that's kind of a hard question to answer because it's just it's just kind of part of your being. You know, it's like it's just, you know, I, I've naturally um, always liked helping people solve problems, um, you know, which is one of the things that attracted me to, to GIS, actually. Um, you know, helping people answer questions, um, you know, training other people on something. So I've been informally working as a teacher for a long time. Um, and as I mentioned, when, when I was approached about, you know, would you be interested in, in um, helping teach these courses for the Interdisciplinary Studies Program, um, I realized I could do a better job at helping students prepare to be candidates to come talk to me mm -hmm. than some of the folks that, that they're, you know, they're currently seeing, and not at UCF, but at other institutions mm -hmm. where they were teaching GIS. And um, I was just motivated by a desire to, to, to try to, 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 to provide students, uh, you know, that kind of, you know, uh, background and also instill in them mm -hmm. the, 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 you know, the interest uh, in this field that I have. Um, you know, I get a lot of feedback, uh, you know, uh, you know, from students, you know, about, you know, I'm, I'm very passionate about the field. Um, but one of the things that I think uh, shows that we're being successful is that most of my students come in having no idea what this technology is. You know, I even ask them in the first night of class. It's mm -hmm. like, how many know how, what, how many of you even Googled it? I might get one or two people raise their hands. Mm -hmm. And by the end of the semester, um, not only are a lot of people enthusiastic about the tool and they see how it integrates with their environmental studies program and they realize why it's a part of the environmental studies program, not only do they see it being a valuable tool, but somewhere on, on between 25 and 30% of them decide, this is what I want to do as my career after graduation, mm -hmm. which was not the plan. We didn't expect to make people into, into GIS professionals, but you know I'm okay with that. It's, it's a nice <laughs> bonus, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's okay the icing that. on the cake. I'm okay right. with that. <laughs> okay, excellent. So you said something in your response that caught my attention. Um, and that is this notion of being passionate about something. Um, some of us would refer to that as a true calling, right? So how do you find that GIS became that thing for you that, that you got not only attached to, but start to feel passionate about passing along to others? Right. Well, you know, I, I had, um, I was, I was, um, when I first came to college, um, yeah, uh, trying to figure out what I wanted to do as a major was, you know, not particularly easy because I had so many different interests. Mm -hmm. And um, I immediately had to eliminate um, a lot of things like engineering because I'm just not very good at math. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I tell my students, I joke with my students, you don't have to be very good at math for GIS because I have a 46 percentile score on the GRE on math, so you don't have to. <laughs> but... Um, you know, I was, I'd already ha always had an interest in biology, and so I ended up gravitating towards mm -hmm. that. And uh, when I was, uh, you know, 
became aware of this GIS project that we had at the Regional Planning Council. And I realized, you know, there are all these problems in, in biology or environmental science where um, this is going to be a really great tool for solving problems faster and better than we could do using any kind of manual technique. Um, give you an example. One of the practical things that came up while I was there is we had um, uh, people that were complaining about our definition of what constituted a regionally significant wetland. Mm -hmm. And without going into all the details, um, we were able to use uh, GIS to look at uh, the size distribution of all the wetlands in a six-county area wow. in a matter of you know weeks. We were able to do the entire study. Mm -hmm. How long would it have taken without computer technology? And how much, how much time would you have spent in the field? Uh, yeah, and well, you know, or what happens just, when it rains? You're just <laughs> looking at aerial photos. How long would it take you to figure out how big? You know, when I used to work at the DOT and we would work on on developing a permit to impact wetlands, mm -hmm. which was one of the things that the environmental group did. Um, my colleagues would spend weeks laboriously measuring the area of each wetland by hand. Mm. And that's something that with GIS you can do in a matter of a morning. Um, so it just made a lot of problems that you were interested in suddenly achievable. You know, you could do them much faster, much easier. Some things that would just be essentially impossible to do suddenly became, you know, possible. Um, so uh, there were more and more, the more I looked at it, there were more and more things that I was interested in doing, you know, first at the Regional Planning Council and mm -hmm. then later on at the, um, the engineering firm that just and uh, GIS just, just you know, was the tool uh, to help you solve it. It's kind of like if you're a, a financial analyst, a spreadsheet is, is your tool. You know? And without a spreadsheet, it's like, well, yeah, I could do this. You know, I could use an abacus. Mm -hmm. Sure, yeah, I could get to the answer. But look at how long it's going to take me. And look at how all the kind of analysis that I could do with a spreadsheet that I can't do with an abacus. Mm -hmm. you know, having a spreadsheet suddenly makes an enormous amount of financial analysis available to you very fast. Mm -hmm. And GIS is kind of the same thing for environmental studies, but also anything that involves, sure. like we talked about, you know, uh, spatial relationships, mm -hmm. whether it's political science or sociology. So I'm going to take a slight shift here and talk about something that has hit the landscape pretty hard in higher education, and that's AI, and specifically chat GPT. Um, do you find that there are individuals on both sides of the argument in relationship to it and their concerns around what's happening with student learning in the midst of this new tool, right? And I'm going to refer to it as a tool because it speaks to my perspective, right? Um, but talk to me about how artificial intelligence applies to GIS. Uh, good question. Um... Actually, AI has been something that's been on the horizon uh, with GIS for many years before it became popularized with ChatGPT. Mm -hmm. um, and it's used in a number of, of ways, some of which are kind of esoteric and hard to explain, but the easiest one to explain, and, and perhaps the most powerful one that's used the most, um, is what's known as um, uh, object classification or automatic uh, object identification. Mm -hmm. um, when you are trying to do something like a land use map, say, or, or let me think uh, even better, um, say you were trying to identify all the building footprints uh, for an entire county. And if you go online and you look at um, uh, like Google Maps and whatever, you can see the building footprints, the outlines of the buildings. 
Well, how did they get those? It used to be that you had to have humans laboriously trace those. We call that digitizing, and we teach students how to do that in GIS. But they had to laboriously trace each one of those. Well, you can imagine how long would it take to do the campus or the entire county or the entire country? You know, it would take an enormous amount of effort by a lot of people. You can actually train an AI to recognize how to tell the difference between a, a rooftop and the area around it, the grassy area or the parking lot around it. And once it recognizes how to identify the rooftop, mm -hmm. it can digitize that rooftop for you like that. It can digitize hundreds of thousands of them in a matter of you know an hour. So that's how all the building footprints in the US have been done. And there's people using that kind of object classification for finding wetlands, um, or uh, you know other kinds of structures, finding uh, wildlife corridors, uh, anything where you could teach the machine how to recognize the thing I'm looking for, mm -hmm. and it's basically you're trying to you're trying to uh, uh, you know uh, teach it the same thing you would be teaching a human operator. Mm -hmm. You say you know this is this is a good one, these are not; those are good ones; these are not, and it doesn't initially uh, uh, understand. But as you give it more examples it finally figures out its own rules for, mm -hmm. oh, I see. And we don't necessarily know what those are, which is mm -hmm. one of the mysteries of AI is somewhere inside, it's figured out how to tell the difference between a roof and the grassy area next to it. We don't know exactly how it's done it, but we've given it the training samples that have allowed it to learn that. Um, and that's been a very powerful technique. That's used a lot. It's used a lot. Excellent. So we live in Florida. And amongst all of the wonderful attributes of living in Florida, the sunshine and uh, the weather and so forth and so on, we also live in an area that has to deal with disaster by way of hurricanes. Um, and your explanation around AI and, and this object identification that it does, I suspect has some usefulness in relationship to disaster management. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? GIS has been involved in disaster planning, response, and recovery, mm -hmm. which are the three phases. You know, mm -hmm. preparing for the disaster, mm -hmm. dealing with the disaster as it's happening, mm -hmm. and then recovering from the disaster. All three of those phases use GIS. Every major city and county in the country um, uses GIS to help with those three phases of disaster preparedness. Um, and there's just a whole bunch of things that you, know, you, can, you can imagine uh, uh, might be used. For example, if you're preparing for a disaster, you know, one of the things you have to do is identify where are all the best spots to have um, the um, uh, uh, shelters mm -hmm. so that people can evacuate. Mm -hmm. um, and we have to keep track of all of them, and mm -hmm. and you know know you know how what capacity there is, and how, and how much you know um, how many you know cots and 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 food and water do we have at each of those facilities. So the logistics of managing your preparedness is is something you can manage with the GIS, mm -hmm. making sure that all the roadways uh, that uh, people will use to evacuate are not going to be affected by a mm -hmm. storm or other disaster, um, and modeling how much traffic is there going to be on it. Again, this is all something that uses GIS. When the uh, disaster is in progress, um, you can in real time uh, uh, use GIS to track how are things going? How many people are in each shelter? Do we need to move people from shelter A to shelter B? Um, 
we now have the ability to do what is known as a dashboard. You've probably seen some of these mm -hmm. and not realized that behind the scenes there's a GIS running it. Oh. But if you go to a website where it's got counts and dials and, and a map and it's showing you in real time. There was one for COVID, for example, yes. that showed where all the COVID cases were mm -hmm. worldwide. And you could see lists of cities and the amount of cases for each city. Um, that was all run by a GIS uh, dashboard uh, software product. Um, so those are used extensively by county um, uh, emergency response operations to, to track in real time what's going on. Uh, and then the recovery phase, you have to go out and figure out what's been damaged, what did we lose? And one of the things we have there is the ability to send people out with their smartphones and collect data in the field that gets act automatically added to a, a GIS website mm -hmm. and they can track Here's the places where the road washed out. Here's the homes that have been damaged. Here's the homes that are underwater. Here's the trees that are down. Um, I was involved in a project many years ago for a, for a hurricane that hit South Florida. And we were using GIS um, to um, uh, evaluate where all the trees were down. And then there was another operation that was not using GIS. And FEMA um, thought our data was so uh, easy to understand and was so well done that they wrote a check for the county mm -hmm. before the, the, the team that had done the work before we came on site, they had submitted theirs earlier and their check didn't come until much later. So um, GIS was able to not only uh, help us do the job faster, better, cheaper, mm -hmm. but it actually produced a better product mm -hmm. and, and got help for the county involved faster than, than the team that didn't mm -hmm. use it. So it's, it's used extensively, it's used a disaster preparedness and response is one of the huge, huge, huge areas mm -hmm. that, where GIS has become very important. Now, and, and one of the things that I found fascinating about that was the first time that I actually worked with individuals who were impacted by uh, a major disaster here in Florida. Um, I was working for the federal government and overseas at the time, and there were military personnel who had to be reassigned uh, to Germany from Homewood Air Force Base um, when the hurricane came through there and leveled that Air mm -hmm. Force Base to, to basically nothing. Um, and many of those service members and their families had absolutely nothing when they came to Germany. And we had to in-process them and figure out where to assign them and those kinds of things. And, and even though we were thousands of miles away, the impact of that was felt literally all over the world as a result of one military installation mm -hmm. getting leveled. But the way that the military was able to respond to that so quickly was phenomenal as well. And I'm sure that GIS had something to do with that. Uh, certainly on, on the, uh, the, and you're right, that, that base is, it, it's gone today. They never, mm -hmm. they decided not to rebuild it. Um, uh, but uh, uh, the military uses GIS extensively. They all have uh, all the armed forces, uh, you know, Marines, Air Force, uh, Navy, they all have their own GIS uh, teams. Uh, and, and one of the things that they're very active at doing is, is uh, digitizing, putting all of their bases into a GIS so they can do what's known as facilities management. Mm -hmm. They can track every building. They know what every building, uh, what its purpose is, you know, whether or not it has air conditioning, how many floors it's got, you know, how many desks it has in it. You know, there's, there's just everything that they need to know about every structure is put into the database. So whether they're planning 
um, you know, like they're moving somebody from one department to another or they're having to deal with a disaster, all of that information is available to them. So yeah, it's used extensively by, uh, well, not just the military, the entire federal government mm -hmm. has an enormous investment in GIS. So um, the, the, and I think this is one of the reasons that students become attracted to this mm -hmm. as, as, a, as a field is, you know, they've already got an interest, uh, the ones that we see in the program, you know, in environmental studies, and, and then they see, you know, there's so many different opportunities where having GIS skills uh, uh, doesn't just doesn't narrow your focus. It actually opens you up to being, you know, the same techniques and tools I could use in the environmental field, I could just as easily be using for facilities management or for, you know, uh, you know, helping Popeye's fried chicken find, you know, where's the best place to put a new franchise. The same tools you know, that you would use for, for this, you know, could be used by all these different mm -hmm. um, uh, endeavors. So, so it's, it, it allows you to, uh, uh, you know, widen your opportunities for, for future employment. Mm -hmm. It doesn't narrow them. Okay. What advice would you give students thinking about pursuing environmental studies? <sighs> That's a good question. Um, you know, they... One of the things I think students need to do is is uh, uh, be open, be open to uh, uh, new ideas, new opportunities. Don't too early try to close yourself off to um, you know one particular uh, you know line of of interest. Uh, a lot of students, uh, when I first meet them, um, they say, "Oh, I, I want to work outdoors with animals." Um, I could count probably on on two hands the number of people I know. Who spent their careers working outdoors with animals. Mm -hmm. There aren't too many opportunities no. like that. Um, another thing I often hear from students is, oh, I don't want to involve uh, work at anything that involves working in an office or on a computer. Well, sorry, <laughs> but you know. Welcome to the 21st century. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. You know, I, I worked at a, you know, the, the engineering and environmental consulting firm I worked had over 10,000 employees. Mm -hmm. About a third of those were environmental uh, staff. Mm -hmm. There wasn't a single one of them who didn't have a PC assigned to him or her. All of them came back to the office at least part of the week mm -hmm. to work on that computer. Mm -hmm. All of them did. There wasn't a single one who spent all of his time or her time outdoors with animals. So, <laughs> so you gotta be you gotta be ready to, to to look at you know being being prepared for you know uh, um, learn as much as you can about as many um, you know it's good to specialize but. It's also good to have kind of a wider perspective, mm -hmm. um, so that you can you can um, you can shift and and uh, and 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 kind of redirect uh, as necessary. You see if if you see an opportunity, you can you're you're prepared to do that. Um, but the the environmental studies field, environmental science field, is there's it's there's so much variety. It's so wide open. There's lots of opportunities in many different um, sub areas. Uh, as we all know, sustainability now uh, is uh, finally uh, a term that uh, uh, is uh, becoming popular with more than just a small segment sure. of the population. Uh, so more and more students uh, I've seen um, as I follow their careers on mm -hmm. LinkedIn um, are becoming sustainability mm -hmm. experts and getting positions where sustainability is in their title. Uh, and, and that's huge. Uh, uh, there's uh, um, And again, these, these folks... Uh, being kind of a generalist, you know, having having a good grounding in environmental studies and environmental science is important. But
but also being able to see the big picture and being able to go you know, outside of this narrow uh, field of interest is important to somebody working in the sustainability field because they have to look at sustainability as something that affects everything an organization does. Um, so you have to be kind of open to learning about mm -hmm. all sorts of you have to learn about if you're working at a county, you know, what is it that the solid waste department does? What is it that the, the public works department does? I can't help them be sustainable if I don't have um, and a better understanding of what they do. Um, so you have to be you have to be open to new stuff. Yes, that is absolutely important because I and I realize how sustainability has become uh, something that people are engaged in more conversations about, even in sort of the common workspace, common marketplace. And not something that my parents used to refer to as the hippy dippy thing, right? Yeah. You know, where, oh yeah, that's that's a hippy dippy person who's saving all their scraps and, and using them for compost to grow their own garden. You know, we don't do that, right? Um, and it's interesting because as we've seen it evolve, we've also seen sustainability evolve globally, right? Where, you know, years ago when I was living overseas, everyone recycled in Germany, everyone, you know, and there were, there was a day when they picked up regular trash, a day when they picked up the clear glass, a day when they picked up the colored glass, a day when they picked up the, the paper, and it was expected, it was a part of the culture. And so now here we are, you know, years later where it's becoming part of the culture in the U.S. now. And people are becoming much more concerned and involved in the ways in which sustainability impacts on their everyday lived experience. So when we think about students who are earning degrees and about to graduate with a degree in environmental studies, what career advice would you give to those students as they prepare to walk across the stage? Oh dear, yeah. So um, as I mentioned earlier, when you're uh, looking to get a job, you know, some of our students go on into graduate school, and so that's a little different. Um, so let's think about just the ones that are looking to go straight into 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 a job. Mm -hmm. um, you want to you want to think in terms of how do I differentiate myself from the, all the other candidates who are, are going to be competing for the same positions I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. You know, there needs to be something. Uh, employers get a deluge of resumes, whether it's electronic or paper, most of them are electronic nowadays. Mm -hmm. But applications, they get, they get, they get swamped. And, and uh, there's some things that are differentiators on the negative side. Mm -hmm. Some things that will end up having your resume or your application rejected. And you don't want to be in that group. Mm -hmm. And this is something I try to make clear to my students, both in the GIS classes I teach, but also in the environmental studies classes, mm -hmm. and particularly the capstone class, mm -hmm. their final experience before they go off into the into the, the world outside UCF. Um, don't be the person whose resume has spelling errors or grammatical errors in it that is going to cause it to be tossed. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I tell people is if you're going to cite your GIS experience uh, as a plus, mm -hmm. spell the name of the software correctly. Nothing is going to get your resume tossed faster. <laughs> you know, it's like you're purporting to be an expert you know, at this software product, but you can't spell it correctly. That's going to get your resume tossed. Mm -hmm. So step one is be detail-oriented. You know, look at all the things that you're, you're sending in, whether it's electronic or on paper, and make sure you haven't made any dumb mistakes that are going to cause your, your resume to be discarded. Um, 
And then you have to think about, okay, that's kind of the negative you know, the side of, of, of differentiation. What can I do to positively differentiate myself? Mm -hmm. So there what you want to do is promote what things are going to be there in your background or your resume that if they have a tough call, it's like, well, you know, Bob and Jane are just so similar, says the employer, you know, but, oh, you know, Jane has that GIS certificate. Bob doesn't have one of those, you know. You know, Jane has that internship. You know, Bob didn't do any of that. You know, there's going to be things that you can do that are going to help differentiate you from the rest of the pack. Mm -hmm. So look for those things that you can do, whether it's it's getting a certification, not just in GIS. There's other certification programs that might be valuable to your career or whether it's a work experience. Um, you know, these are things that are going to make you look uh, more attractive to a potential employer and make you stand out against the, you know, perhaps hundreds of well, others. Well, study abroad experience that Dr. Plate does, right? Well, I, you know, anything like mm -hmm. that, you know, and, you know, and, and what, I guess the last thing is, 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 you know, uh, uh, you need to work that into your resume and your cover letter. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not enough just list it. Mm -hmm. You know, you need to, you need to point out in your cover letter, you need to call that out. You know, like, I did this study abroad program with uh, Dr. Hawthorne in Belize, mm -hmm. uh, where we used... Uh, GIS and drones to map, you know, and go on and on, you know, into, you know, what is the exactly you did? Because the employer is going to say, well, not only did you have a fun time in Belize, but you actually did something useful that, that relates to what we do. And that's what you're trying to get is the connection. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, what he did there doesn't really relate to anything specifically we do, but it shows that he's trainable and he's open to learning new stuff. And that's what we want. We want employees that are going to be, we don't expect them to be people, you know, automatons that are going to be, you put them into the line and they just function on day one. They need to be people that are uh, trainable, that are open to ideas, that, that you know, that are flexible. Mm -hmm. uh, and you want to be able to show that, you know, in your materials, whether it's your cover letter or your resume or your interview. You need to be able to promote, yes, I had this experience and here's how it helped me prepare to be a better employee for you. Mm -hmm. And, and I think all of those things are really important for our students and, and our, especially those students who are preparing to graduate to hear. And sometimes it's the little things that make all the difference in the world. One of the pieces of advice that I give to students is comb through your social media um, and be careful about what not only what you've posted, but the people who you friended and what they've posted because it shows up on your page too. And if you have inappropriate things on there, people are going to be a little leery about how well you're going to represent their firm or their company or their organization, right? And then when you show up for the interview, show up prepared, right? Um, we still live in a world where it matters how you present yourself in, in professional spaces. Um, and, and I'll use myself as an example. I was interviewing for a group of graduate research assistants to support the college. And uh, there was one person who showed up in a professional attire, the shoes and, uh, and dress and whatnot. And I thought, you know, even though this is somebody who's looking for an assistantship, they came in prepared to present themselves in a very business oriented way. And that is something that whether or not they were best suited for the job certainly makes that person memorable, right? So 
Um, all of those things are important, and we have all kinds of opportunities for students to um, learn how to prepare themselves for that, whether they go to the Office of Experiential Learning or Career Services for support and advice, if they go to student involvement for opportunities to do things like the Volunteer UCF program that offers a lot of opportunities for students to not only use the skills that they have, but to learn new skills while serving the public, to do service learning in one of their courses, or to do a, a research intensive course where they can build their research skills. Lots and lots of opportunities to really highlight their ability and adaptability to go into the workforce. Right. All those things are, you know, help you on the positive side of the differentiation mm -hmm. ledger. They all show, you know, the, the, the kinds of extra stuff that you've done to differentiate yourself from the crowd. So that's the positive. And, and what you said about the young lady who came dressed in a professional way, that's part of that. Don't shoot yourself in the foot. You know, um, even for a job that is supposed to be for some, you know, that, that is, uh, you know, maybe entirely field oriented, don't come in dressed like you're going to go out in the field that day unless they ask you to do that. You know, uh, I actually did have a, um, an interview like that uh, years ago where, you know, we were going to go out and actually go in the field and, and you know, had to be dressed for, you know, a field day. But, you know, if it's going to be a meeting in the office, dress professionally and, and you know, you know, you know, avoid all the other things I mentioned earlier. Don't don't give somebody an excuse to eliminate you for a silly reason. You know, you want to put your best foot forward. You know, um, um, you know, you may have to dress up a little more than you feel comfortable uh, or that will be necessary even once you've got the job. Sure. But you want to you want to try to make sure if I'm going to lose this to somebody else, it's going to be because they were the better candidate, not because I messed it up. You know, right. that's that's what you need to do is, is go in. You know, that, that, you know, put your best foot forward kind of mentality. You know, I've, I did the best I could. She got the job because she was better qualified, not because I messed up. You need to, you need to be prepared Absolutely. that way. Absolutely. Okay. So um, I have, so, so some of the folks who know me know that um, I have interesting and eclectic taste in the way in which I view television programming. <laughs> <laughs> I think you and I could talk about this for a long time. Yeah. As my, as my students could tell you, I'm kind of a nut about movies. And, um, and so I, I find an opportunity to work movies into almost every lecture. So, Well, um, I typically work music into almost every lecture I used to teach. Um, but one of the things that happened not too long ago was I started watching a, an HMO Max, which is now considered Max, for trade per trademark purposes, um, uh, a program that features uh, Laverne Cox. And she, it's a talk show type of format where she's interviewing up and coming um, artists, movie stars, that kind of thing. Um, and the name of the program is called If We're Being Honest. And at the end of her conversation with whomever is sitting in the chair, she always asks, is there anything that I didn't ask that I should have asked? So I'm going to ask you, did I miss anything? Is there something that I didn't ask that I should have asked that you would like to share? I just, I guess I'll just emphasize that, uh, uh, you know, uh, even though I came here initially uh, to teach GIS courses, and that's mostly what mm -hmm. I do, I do teach a couple of environmental studies courses. Um, for those students who are watching this, 
who have yet to take a GIS course with me or one of the other instructors, um, you know, uh, I, I would encourage you to, to look it up online and see, you know, what its potential is that, um, you know, we are not asking you to take a computer course um, that is, uh, you know, far afield from, from your, your area of expertise or interest. Um, this is going to fit right in with what you want to do with your career. And, and uh, uh, like I said, I usually most students, I have a few that end up like, boy, was that a waste of time. But most of them come out of the experience realizing, hey, I understand not only A, you know, how to use this thing, but B, I now understand why it's part of this program. Mm -hmm. And I think the folks that originally required GIS to be part of the curriculum were really pretty smart. Mm -hmm. They saw on the horizon, this is a tool that's gonna be important to our graduates, mm -hmm. so let's include some classes on it. I think that was a good call. And um, so, yeah, we'll leave it there. Okay, so now we're gonna enter what I call the speed round oh boy. of our conversation. It's an opportunity for our listeners and our viewers to get to know you a little bit better on sort of a personal level. Oh, okay. And I'm just gonna ask a few very simple questions. You answer with the first thing that comes to the top of your mind. Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> okay, favorite color? Uh, blue. Yeah. <laughs> that was a little obvious, yeah, easy, right? Yeah. Okay. Favorite song? Ah, favorite song. Um, uh, my favorite piece of classical music is uh, Tommaso Albanoni's uh, Concerto for Organ and Strings. Oh. Yeah, and it's been adapted for uh, lots of different, for, for guitar and a lot mm -hmm. of other things. Um, if we were talking about popular music, um, I grew up in Florida. Uh, you know, it's hard to pick a single song, but uh, the album A1A by Jimmy Buffett is kind of the Florida experience, so <laughs> okay. I'd, have to, I'd have to go with that. All right, excellent. Favorite artist? Favorite artist, uh, uh, Monet. Mm -hmm. Favorite actor? Favorite actor, uh, that's tough. Uh, well, the favorite favorite actor du jour uh, would be Michelle Yeoh. Oh, yeah, she's phenomenal. Uh, you know, uh, she's done so much great years. stuff. Yeah, uh, you know, uh, I was just uh, extremely blown away by her performance in Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. And she so deserved mm -hmm. that Oscar. Yeah, she caught my attention years ago in the Joy Luck Club. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's been in a lot of great stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, Crazy Rich Asians. Mm -hmm. She was in that James that Bond film. Oh, that was like her yeah. first American mm -hmm. film. Um, and uh, she's also uh, was a really great character in, um, in Star Trek. And it's oh, going to be coming back. Loved her yeah. in Discovery. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, in case you didn't know, I'm a huge Star Trek fan. Oh, okay. Well, we got that yeah. in common. <laughs> And I'm, I'm excited and yet disappointed that the last season for Star Trek Discovery is happening next year. Um, but they're bringing Michelle Yeoh back, so I'm yeah, just like, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. And rumor has it she's getting her own Star Trek series. Well, I think it actually has become a Star Trek movie. I think they decided it's a to... movie. Okay. Yeah, Section 31, they decided Section to... Section 31, Because yes. she's, after getting her Oscar, she's now so busy, they can't, they can't get her to commit to a series, so... So, yeah. So, it's going to be a movie instead. But I think that's still going to be great because oh, she's just wonderful. Now. All right. Favorite book? I think my favorite book would have to be um, Horatio uh, Hornblower and the Hotspur, one of the, the books by C.S. Forrester about mm -hmm. uh, this uh, fictional naval captain during the Napoleonic Wars. Mm -hmm. So, the Hotspur, uh, the Hornblower series was 12 books. Mm -hmm. And my favorite was Hornblower and the Hotspur, his first, his first command as a young man. Okay. Excellent. Uh, favorite author? 
Favorite author uh, would probably be, um, again, a toss-up between Larry Niven and Ben Bova, both of whom are science fiction writers. Mm. Okay. Uh, favorite singer? Favorite singer, uh, Enya. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I like her stuff a lot. Okay, excellent. Um, next place you would love to travel to if time or money were not an option? Oh, man, there's so many places I have yet to see. Morocco. Um, mm, that's uh, on my list, Marrakesh. Yeah, mm -hmm. you know, I actually have personal history. Of, uh, I was actually born there. I have no memory of it since I, I came back as a child, uh, <laughs> as, a very, as an infant. Mm -hmm. But my parents were stationed there um, mm -hmm. uh, in the 50s. And um, um, so, yeah, so I'm actually uh, uh, from um, uh, Kanitra, which is uh, um, a coastal uh, town uh, not too far from Casablanca, oh, which yeah. is, by the way, one of my favorite films. Ah, yes, of course. All right, if you could have dinner with anyone, living or dead, who would it be and why? This is actually easy because I've actually thought about this before. Mm -hmm. uh, Benjamin Franklin. Because yeah. I think... He's an interesting character. Yeah, not only that, but I think Franklin, if you look at... You know, you go back too far in time, mm -hmm. and if you were to bring too many, you know, there's a lot of people if you were bringing mm -hmm. forward, it's like, I couldn't have a conversation with them because they'd be too freaked out. But I think Benjamin Franklin... Well, he man, would be fascinated a by... A man of science the, right, right. Would, be, would be fascinated by mm -hmm. how the country has turned out, mm -hmm. maybe appalled in some respect, mm -hmm. but also fascinated at, the, at, at technological development. So I've often thought about... How would you introduce him to that? You know, you want to start a little slow. You start him off in a, in a nice, like, you know, a, a, a home library or something that, mm -hmm. you know, like, a, a, you know, from, from, from an English estate, something that would feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. And but then gradually, the computer on the desk, gradually right? <laughs> introduce some of the new technology right. to him, you know, until he's a little, uh, you know, I, I thought, you know, you might throw him a, a Model T automobile, you know, uh, to get him a little... I would speak. imagine that if I left him in my house for five minutes by himself, everything would be taken apart. <laughs> that's, that's probably quite true, yeah. Yeah. No, I, yeah. I, and so one of the beauties of growing up in, in Philadelphia is that we learned a lot about Benjamin Franklin. The good, the great, the bad, and the unspeakable. Yeah, he, he, <laughs> he was, was a complicated individual. Yes. Yeah, so, so many of the founders were. They were, they were, they were, you know, we revered them for the great idea that they, they were able to, and they established a new country, mm -hmm. and on principles that we try to, you know, mm. uh, 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 you know, uphold. yeah, that are worth a lot of conversation. Yeah, but but uh, yeah, they themselves were all human beings and complex mm -hmm. people. So so you know, they they weren't they weren't saints, but oh, no. they they were still they 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 were they they did something important at a time where you know they had to stand up to make a difference, and mm -hmm. they did, and that's that's I think the thing that we need to respect them for. Mm. Yep, which is why some of my friends on the opposite side of the pond still refer to us as the colonies. <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, I want to thank you so much for your time today to share your insights, your experiences, your input, your advice uh, to all of us watching and listening to this podcast Sincerely appreciate the opportunity to celebrate you as a faculty member in interdisciplinary studies and really look forward to our continued work together. That I've enjoyed being here, Dean Barry, and it's been a pleasure and uh, the same. I, I hope to be here for a long time. 
And I want to thank our audience for taking time to watch and listen to our podcast today as we celebrate yet another faculty member, Dr. Michael Gilbrook. For Academically Speaking, this is Dr. Theodore Regina Berry, and have a great day.